In terms of kind of how other organizations are using uh, AI, um, whether it be in a kind of UX space or other space, what's your, your view on that and kind of the future of, of AI within, within large corporations? Um, it's inevitable. Um, there's talks of pausing or doing other things, which will never happen because this is an arms race and no one's, no one's taking their foot off the gas. I think there's a lot of this tooling is going to become sort of ubiquitous. Hi, I'm Mike Green, and welcome to Understanding Users, the podcast where I chat candidly with UX design and research professionals from around the world to hear about how they build digital products and services in a user-centered way. I'm John Crouch. I'm head of sales for the Americas at Entropic. And tell me a little bit about Entropic, John. We are an AI-powered research platform. We provide research for both market researchers on media assets and similar, and we do a lot of work with UX research as well. We're adding the emotional and behavioral um, dimension on top of simple survey questions. And how do you foresee, uh, John, kind of AI affecting the way designers and researchers go about their work in terms of kind of designing user-centric products? Um, the, 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 the simple thing is just massive data sets that are collected need administration, and AI has an impact there. We use AI and machine learning to um, do facial coding, for example. So what was invented, what was some research from 40 years ago, looked at 60 action units on your face, and it took a trained researcher an hour to code a one-minute video. With mass compute horsepower and artificial intelligence, we do that second-by-second real-time today. So what was exciting 40 years ago was super accurate and utterly useless because you couldn't take practical action on that. So now we do that second by second real time. That's an example of ways to apply artificial intelligence. That's amazing. So what excites you then about the possibilities kind of following on from that, the possibilities that AI presents to user experience and sort of product design as a, as a discipline? Well, I think our application of AI is a very benign there are not any sort of threatening outcomes from what we do. And it, absent AI, you couldn't do what we do, period, paragraph. Right. And we, uh, we talk about bias in research, uh, where respondents um, like to uh, answer in the way they think they're expected to, or they want to answer like the cool kids do, or they don't want to look dumb, especially in the UX realm. Um, so if you can't capture that, um, you're, you're doing over, you're doing too simplistic a research process. Um, the other thing that I, is, is fascinating to me is eye tracking. Um, in UX research, we've often considered the mouse pointer to be kind of a proxy for where your eye's going. Wouldn't it be better if you just tracked where the eye's going? I, I often find that the first place, that often the cursor will lag when given a task, and where the eyes go first is where the respondent thinks that thing should happen and then their mouse catches up to where they are. So again, it's just an entirely deeper level of understanding of, about how users are responding to what you've assigned. And you mentioned there kind of the benign use uh, in, in the case of Entropic and you know, most kind of AI tools, but just what are your thoughts on the concerns around AI? And I'm thinking of things like sort of hallucinations and plagiarism and some of the kind of more well-reported issues coming out of ChatGPT, for example. Yeah. I, I, um 
the thing that concerns me with ChatGPT is that it very cleverly and efficiently repeats things that aren't true, but that they've encountered, that it's encountered somewhere in the wild. And so there's, there's a lack of depth of thought. Um, thankfully, my kids are out of college, so they're not, you know, phoning in term papers that they wrote on ChatGPT. I, I think people's ability to, to tr sincerely communicate clearly um, requires that depth of thought, and you can't get that from ChatGPT. Um, yeah, and then I won't even speculate on other more <laughs> threatening uh, AI issues. Um, and in terms of kind of how other organizations are using uh, AI, um, whether it be in a kind of UX space or other space, what's your, your view on that and kind of the future of, of AI within, within large corporations? Um, it's inevitable. Um, there's talks of pausing or doing other things, which will never happen because this is an arms race and no one's, no one's taking their foot off the gas. As an example, when we, we do machine transcription of um, interviews from videos and audios, uh, and transcription has become open source and non-differentiated, so we actually use all six, and we figure out which one to apply in which language and which market based on accuracy and speed. I, I think it's... I think there's a lot of this tooling is going to become sort of ubiquitous. Um, um, uh, off switches aren't a bad idea. I don't know if you ever read Andy Kessler in the journal. Um, I've actually met the guy, but he says, hey, don't worry about it. The only thing, if you're really paranoid, put an off switch. Um, and Because and the level of creativity in finding applications for AI is limitless. Let's just, let's just keep out of trouble. And you mentioned their languages and markets, and I'm interested to know to what extent AI is applicable kind of across the globe, or to what extent will there be, you know, for example, given the computing power issues, et cetera, advantages for, let's say, more advanced democracies and economies over developing nations or not? That's an intriguing question. Um, we, for example, we use our machine learning models to do facial coding on... Um, people of every skin tone, gender, age, and region, and that's a machine learning training exercise. You just need to give it, you need to give it um, data, and it learns how to correlate it, and, you know, if you've ever met a Finnish man versus, uh, you know, an American girl, they don't have the same facial cues. They don't respond in the same way. Um, so that's one of those ones where I, th I think it's important to try to be inclusive about where you apply the technology, but the technology flows to the market. Uh, and again, some of these tools like transcription tools, they don't make any money on that. That's just an open source tool for free. Um, so it's just finding ways, finding ways to add value. Um, and the market's generally pretty good at that. Right. And, and how do you go about improving the product? So given that your, your users are, you know, researchers, I guess, to a larger mm -hmm. extent, uh, doing research on researchers. How, how, how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> how do you approach that? Um, it's, it's like almost any product development situation, which is understand the problem, understand the solution, talk to clients and prospects, insert some of your own point of view into it. And that's, that's where Silicon Valley came from, right? You got to understand your, understand your market, understand the problem, uh, and develop compelling things. And what are the biggest challenges you face as an organization in terms of improving your product and, and developing, uh, you know, in terms of your roadmap? Uh, tempo. It's just keep moving as fast as we want to move. Um, 
and it's you know we've got 140 engineers and it's it's still just tempo is hard wow so what advice would you give then to an organization that wants to 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 bring in whether it be something like entropic or whether it be any kind of ai tool or process into their work how how would you say if they were new to the kind of machine learning fields what would you tell them um be open-minded um Find people with flexible commercial policies so you don't have to commit the rest of your life to something. Um, experiment, try new things, attach real business metrics to whatever the project is. Um, don't just kind of try out stuff because it's sexy, but find a business problem that somebody convinces you they can fix. Don't get married forever, and then t- track your data. Um, and see if it paid out. And, and final question, in terms of kind of ethics and, and privacy, what are your views on that in terms of kind of massive data sets and, and, and you know, use of AI? Um, I, I would not do business with a company that is not SOC 2 Type 2 compliant, nor GDPR compliant, nor California, the California variant of GDPR, which escapes me, um, which is basically a certification that your data is held carefully. Now, what the models do with those massive data sets um, is an ethical decision, and, and um, uh, you know, trust your partners, right. or, or you know, convince. You got to be convinced they're trustworthy. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening, and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.